0: Good morning, Chapel Hill. Good morning. I've been at this job now for 27 and a half years. And I have to tell you that in all of the time, I cannot think of another initiative in our church that has done more to unify, to motivate, to excite our congregation in a persistent, enduring kind of a way than the 90-day challenge has done. I'm telling you, I hear buzz on this every time I turn around. We started our visiting of our life groups. Our goal as a pastoral team is to visit every life group before June. So we are trying to do that. I'm meeting with another one tonight. And again, when I was there, they were talking about how the, even though that's not what they are ordinarily doing, how the 90-day challenge has just stimulated them. And they are engaging that as a group. I talked to another woman who said she walked into Forza's and she sees 90-day challenge journals lying all over the table. What a wonderful witness, isn't that? So I am just excited. I don't know why I am surprised. I have confessed I am a little astounded because it's so simple. But something great happens when God's people together, together, around God's Word, the Lord is doing something. So I thank God for that. I hope that you're part of it. If you're visiting us this morning, you're wondering, what the heck is he talking about? The 90-day challenge is an invitation to read one chapter of the Gospels every day for 90 days, and in so doing, you will read all four chapters. And you are making wonderful discoveries, aren't you, about the differences in the in the same stories that are told from different perspectives by Matthew and by Mark and by Luke. Uh, we, uh, if If we do this, we will complete uh, all four Gospels, as I said, in 90 days. And your assignment when you do that is simply to answer at least two questions, although most of you aren't stopping there. One is... What do you learn about Jesus? And the other is, what do you learn about disciple-making? Which is our big focus as a congregation. Now for those of you who are so young in the faith, the disciple-making thing freaks you out. Just put your hand over over making. And say, what do I learn about being a disciple of Jesus? But those that's what we're doing. Those are the questions that we are asking ourselves. And the Lord is stirring our congregation in this process. And yes, we're going to do something next. We don't know yet quite what it is. But we've got to figure out a way to continue on with this uh, momentum. So, here's your accountability moment. How many of you in this last week read at least some part of the 90-day challenge? Raise your hand just keep them up there. Look, I just want to revel in what the Lord is doing. How many of you read all seven chapters? Man, that is just awesome. That is just awesome. See what I mean? This is something that has captured our heart, and the Spirit is at work here. So I thank God for that. For those of you who are not up to speed and, and are feeling overwhelmed by it, could I just say, stop it. Just, just forget what's behind. Start on Luke thirteen tomorrow. Join with the rest of us. This is not going to be a burden. It's an invitation to join. So just start with Luke thirteen as we continue on, on our journey in this wonderful gospel of Luke. Our challenge as a preaching team, of course, is to draw principles that come out of the seven weeks, uh, the seven uh, chapters we've studied in the week prior that help us to be better disciple makers. And so you begin to hear words that I hope are leaching into your soul. Words like relational. Words like. Entang- words like unflappable you see some of them up there God Jesus made disciples by entrusting and by slowing and last week we looked again at how Jesus made disciples in his going Jesus said go and make disciples and when we understand that that word go in the Greek doesn't mean go in it means in your going as you are on your way it changes our whole perspective on this call to disciple making doesn't it it makes it perhaps a little bit less daunting when we realize what he is saying is, on your way in life, keep your head on a swivel, keep looking for what God is doing, and then participate in what the Lord is calling you to do in your going. This morning, the theme that comes out of last week's chapter that I'm choosing is this. Jesus also made disciples by asking great questions, by asking great questions. And I wondered if you noticed all of the great questions that appeared in this last week. <clears throat> One of the more boring aspects of of making our trip to Mexico is that you have to return back into the United States through the border. And, uh, and it's a long wait, usually two hours or more, and you're sitting in long, long lines. That's the picture of what, what we have every time we come back. <laughs> men who are thinking about signing up, forget that you just saw that, wiped wipe that. <laughs> it's a breeze, you'll get right in, no problem. So you sit in there and you're waiting for uh, hundreds of cars that are going to be inspected before they are allowed into the United States. It was a little more exciting this year because as we were sitting there, we watched a dog handler with a sniffing dog suddenly move violently from this side, clear over, six rows over, I don't know how the dog smelled it. And he starts barking at this car, and pretty soon all the agents are converging. That guy's out; he's in handcuffs, and he has a, a, an entry into the United States that he was not counting on. So, when we came to the border, uh, we were very much on our toes because the uh, the, the immigration officer is asking questions of us all kinds of questions. And uh, those are important questions not to be joking with, not to be fooling around with. So we make it clear to the kids, do not mess around. And of course, really what the officer is asking this is basically three things. Who are you? Where have you been? And where are you going? Who are you? Where have you been? Where are you going? There's a real sense in that that, that Jesus was doing exactly the same thing in the questions that he asked in his ministry. Who are you? Where have you been? And where do you want to go? He was a champion question asker. Jesus was a champion question asker. We don't usually think of him in those terms. We think of him as a prophet. We think of him as a teacher, a preacher, a miracle worker, an exorcist, a master over all of natural creation. And all of those things, indeed, he was. But he is also a preeminent asker of questions. For instance, when you think about this last week. Do you have any idea how many questions Jesus asked just in the seven chapters we covered in this last week? Any idea? 38. 38 questions in seven chapters that we just covered in this last week. In Jesus' disciple making... He considered the effective use of questions to be essential to the way he built up people in the Lord. And if we're going to be his disciple makers, we better learn the art of asking great questions. The truth is, one of the things that overwhelms most people at the prospect of sharing their faith in some way, wherever they are in the journey, is what? They don't feel like they know enough, right? Have have you ever felt that way? I'm a a little intimidated about sharing my faith because I feel kind of stupid sometimes. And I'm afraid that they're going to ask me a question to which I do not know the answer. And then I'll ruin it. They'll go to hell because I didn't have the right answers. And isn't that kind of what we end up feeling? By the way, part of my response would be, of course you don't have all of the answers. And there is a standard and perfectly acceptable three-word response when they give you that kind of a question. What is that three-word response? (laughs) Yes, see, you already know it. Isn't that awesome? I don't know. But then you say, but I'll find out. It gives you a a wonderful follow-up opportunity. I will find out, and I'm going to get back to you on that one. So... Uh, but but notice this: Jesus, who did have all of the answers, right he did have all the answers, he still asked questions, right, so Jesus, who had all the answers anytime he asked someone something it wasn 't because he didn 't know he still knew the power of the question and the power of the response, and so we 're going to take a look at the the master at, at mastering the master 's art of Question asking in the last week, Jesus asked some very profound questions. Luke six forty six is probably the question that's most troubling to people who have been in the Lord for a long time. And every time you hear this, every time I hear it, it vexes me a little bit. Luke six forty six says, "Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say?" It is the deepest lordship question, isn't it? Why do you call me Lord if you're not going to do what I tell you to do? Jesus says. There's another question that we saw that I think is so powerful. It took place in a, in a great crowd of people. Jesus was on his way to, to heal a dying man's daughter. As it turns out, he raises her from the dead. But on the way, the crowds are pressing in on him. He is being mushed in the crowd. And suddenly, one poor woman reaches out longing to be healed, touches the hem of his garment, and he stops and says, what crazy question? Who touched me? Jesus, even the disciples said, what are you talking about? Everybody's touching you. But what a powerful question Jesus noticed, the one in the crowd. Here's one of my favorite questions that also came in this last week. It is an exasperated question from Jesus to the disciples. It is the question that every parent of a teenager has offered. And it is the question that every teenager who has a parent has offered. And here it is. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? <laughs> am I right, parents? How long am I? Can you just see Jesus? Oh. <laughs> but in these last seven chapters, I also think that there are four that may be the most important disciple-making questions you could ask. So if you're seriously interested in this, then I want you to, we don't do a lot of note taking around here. We ought to, cause every word from my mouth, I mean, but, but we ought to write down at least these four things because I think they're very helpful. So you've got pen, you've got a blue cards which you use so faithfully. Here's another. Like, write, I want you to write these down. Here they, here they are. They are simple and they are profound. And we'll start with a flyover to look at them real quickly and then we will come back to them. So start with Luke chapter eight. Turn with me to Luke chapter 8, verse 25. The question we find there is simply what? Where is your faith? Where is your faith? I couldn't find Luke 8.25. I really ought to spend more time in the word, I think. There it is, just where it was supposed to be. Luke 8.25. Uh, now I want you to drop down. Here's the second one. The second one is Luke 8:30. Take a look, drop down to there. Do you see the question? What is your name? What is your name? Here's the third, turn to Luke nine twenty. Learn Luke nine twenty. And he asks, Who do you say that I am? And then Luke nine twenty five. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? So those are the four questions that I think may be the most important disciple making questions you can ask. Where is your faith? What is your name? Who do you say that I am? And what does it gain a man if he, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits his very self? That's our text for the morning. I want you to join me in praying and that the Lord will reveal his truth to us now. Jesus, thank you for these questions, which on their surface seem so simple. Help us to understand the depth of the question you asked of those people, that you ask of us, and that you would invite us to ask of others. God, make us inquisitive people for the sake of the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Any given Sunday morning, as we, if we do a little survey across this crowd, you would find that people fall on all across the spectrum of Christian maturity. There are some of you who have been Christians for years. You are mature in your faith. You are disciple-makers. There are others of you who are just now beginning to explore what it means to be a a follower of Jesus. This is all pretty new to you. But God, here's the great thing, because it's the Spirit of God at work in us. God can use even the youngest in the faith to accomplish great things of helping people along in a journey of their own faith. There's a man who went to uh, Mexico a couple of weeks ago. I think he would describe himself as pretty new in his faith. And yet, those kids that worked with him were so taken by him that they had all kinds of questions for him. And so he ended up meeting, in fact, he met yesterday afternoon with a handful of those kids who wanted to come and ask him questions about faith. He was terrified. He was talking with me beforehand. How do I do this? And we talked, we talked, I coached a little bit, but... Here's a young guy who's already being used by the Lord to help others who are maybe one, one step behind him in their, in their growth, in, in their faith. Whether you feel qualified or not, whether you are mature in your faith or you consider yourself a babe or maybe not even yet quite in Christ, there's one thing that all of us can do without fear. That's going to help us grow in our relationships with other people. And help other people grow in their relationship with God. And that is to ask great questions. The nice thing is it comes easily. It's what we know how to do. We ask questions all the time. How are you doing? Did you find that new shop in Uptown? Uh, how's your daughter's soccer team doing? Did you see the game last night? We ask questions all the time. Our learning opportunity is how do we take what we naturally do well and drive it deeper. Make, because most of the questions of our life tend to be pretty surfacey, and we like it that way. Jesus invites us to take our questions to a deeper level. So I want to look at those four questions that we talked about earlier, take it a little deeper. So turn back to Luke chapter 8, if you can find it. I couldn't, but it's there somewhere, I'm sure. Luke chapter 8. And here's the story I want to tell you. One day Jesus comes to his disciples and said, let's go across the lake to the other side. We infer that he was exhausted. Jesus had been pressed on by all sides. Crowds were always demanding things of him. And, and so Jesus is pooped and he wants a bit of a getaway. So he said, let's go to the other side of the lake. So they get into one of the fishing boats and they and they head out. and And promptly Jesus falls asleep. It gives you some indication of how exhausted he must have been. The Sea of Galilee sits 700 feet below sea level. Just imagine that. 700 feet below sea level and it is surrounded by a rim of mountains on all sides. So when the winds come in and they do sweep in, especially from the eastern side, they can turn what is a placid sea of glass into a tumultuous storm just that fast. I know it's true because I've seen it happen. It goes from calm to tumultuous just that fast. And that's exactly what happened with them. They're on their, this boat ride across to the other side. It's about seven miles away. And suddenly the winds come in and that's, that boat is being tossed all over the place. And they were terrified. It must have been something because at least four of his disciples, what was their profession? Fishermen, they knew the sea. This was not unfamiliar to them. And yet this storm was so bad that they, we read that all of them were terrified. And they cried out to Jesus, Master, we're going to drown. We're going to drown. We're going to die here. And Jesus woke up, rubbed his eyes, stood up. And we read that he rebuked the wind and the sea. What does it look like to rebuke the wind? You naughty wind! I have had it with you. You are keeping on doing this. You are making a mess of things and you're scaring my friends. Now stop it, Jesus said. Is that what a rebuke of the wind looks like? And that's exactly what happened. The wind stopped blowing. The waves stopped crashing around them. All went calm. And then Jesus turns to his disciples with one simple question. What is it? Where is your faith? Where is your faith? Next question. Jesus, they land on the other side of the sea. Same chapter. They get to the other side of the sea. Remember, Jesus is tired. He's looking for a little bit of a break. They, no sooner, though, does he set foot on that land when this is what they see coming towards him. A naked man screaming at the top of his lung. Jesus, Jesus, what do you have to do with me, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. And he throws himself down at the feet of Jesus. So much for his day off, right? The guy was demon possessed. He freaked people out. The residents of the area had tried to put him in chains so they could control him, maybe protect them from himself or himself from himself. That didn't work. He was so superhumanly strong that he could break those chains like they were made out of plastic. No one wanted this weirdo living near them, and so he ended up sleeping in the tombs of the dead that were cut into the hillside far out from the from the road, from the uh, from the city. Can you imagine th- this poor man, a naked, demon-possessed superhuman who slept with dead people? You're not going to find a much more pathetic or frightening figure in the New Testament. So this naked, filthy, scarred, crazed man runs towards Jesus, screaming at the top of his lung, throws himself at Jesus' feet. And Jesus asks one question. What is it? What is your name? What is your name? He says, my name is Legion because there are so many demons inside of me. Jesus decides to help this poor man, and so he orders the demons to leave him and go into a herd of pigs. You know what they do, right? The pigs jumped off of the cliff and into the water. Do you know what it was? It was the very first swine dive. Where's my drummer when I need him? It was awesome. You loved it. And Legion was free. Where is your faith? What is your name? We turn to the next chapter, we come to the next story. Jesus was off praying in a place that was private. We know from Matthew that the setting was a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's my favorite place in Israel. It's so beautiful. It's 40 miles north of Capernaum. It's gorgeous. It was also weird. Because it was the center of X-rated worship practices to the half-man, half-goat, sex-crazed God named Pan. I'm not sure why Jesus decided to take his disciples up there to see that. But in the context of that setting, Jesus turns to the boys and says, And he says, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they say, Well, some say that you're John the Baptist come back to life. Some say that you're Elijah. Some say another prophet. And then Jesus pauses for a moment and then he asks him the most important question that every human being will one day have to answer Jesus. Every human being will one day answer this question Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, this is one of his finer moments, and you know Peter, he's like a human sine wave, but this is one up here. Peter responds, you are the Christ, you are the anointed one, the Savior sent from God to the world. Where is your faith? What is your name? Who do you say that I am? And then later on in the conversation, verse 25, we read this, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? In other words, Jesus says, what are you living for? What are you living for? Again, it's a very powerful question. So what if you are so smart, so clever, so powerful that you accumulate more wealth than you can ever use, more power than you can ever wield, more of a house than you can ever live in? You have the greatest retirement plan. You got the nicest new car. So what if in the process of getting all of that, you lose you? So what if in the process of accomplishing all that the world says is great, you forfeit what it means to be human as God has created you to be human? What have you gained, Jesus asked? The obvious answer is nothing. It's worse than nothing, for you have been distracted from the one thing that is eternal, for baubles that will die with you. What is your faith? What is your name? Who do you say that I am? And what are you living for? They are four of the most important questions Jesus ever asked. And they are four of the most important questions and effective questions that we could ask if we're willing to take our questioning from the surfacey stuff that we most normally are comfortable with. I want to look at it briefly one more time, a little bit closer and in a little different order. Again, jot these down if you have not already done so. And think about how you might use these questions in your relationships to take them to a deeper place. One more time. First of all, I want to start. What is your name? Do you really think that Jesus didn't know what this guy's name was? Of course he knew his name was Legion. But what Jesus was really asking him was this. Who are you? Who are you really? In other words, I want to get to know you. I want to hear your story from your lips. Would you tell me? How is it that you ended up being in this place? What happened in your life that brought you to this moment? What is your story? What makes you tick? What is your name? The second question that we might ask that would be a little bit further along is, where is your faith? In other words, what do you believe about things beyond this material world? Do you think that there's a God? Do you think that there's something more than this? Do you believe in astrology? What what do you believe? Is there something more after this life? Or is this it? And especially in times of crisis, especially when the storms strike you, In what do you believe to give you hope? Do you see how important that question is? So what is your name? Tell me your story. I want to get to know who you really are. What do you believe? What is your point of reference? Is there something bigger than this world in which you believe? Then comes the third question. And eventually, if you're a believer, eventually you're going to have the opportunity to ask this question. Here it is. Who do you say Jesus is? Notice you're not preaching at him. You're not telling him who he is. You're saying, who do you say Jesus is? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? Did he really exist? Was he a historical person? Was he a prophet, a good guy, a miracle worker? Was he the divine son of God and the savior of the world? What do you believe about this man, Jesus? I'm really curious. I want to know. And then finally, with those as kind of the foundation, comes this very important question. What are you living for? What are you living for? One day, someone's going to be up in front. Your name is going to be on the front of a brochure, on the bulletin. Your date of death will be on the end of the date of life line. And people are going to be talking about you. What will they say of you? What will they say you lived your life for? What would count for something if you could have it said of you in that moment? What are you living for? What is your name Where is your faith? Who do you say that Jesus is? And what are you living for? Can you see how powerful those four simple questions could be? Can you see how those questions could open the doors of relationship with others? But only under one condition. You've got to hear this. The the one condition that is necessary for making these questions valuable is this. That you actually what? Listen to the answers. That you actually listen to their answers. That you actually care about what they say to you. If you view question asking as a gimmick for guiding people toward the answers that you want, then you aren't really asking questions at all. You are manipulating them. Aren't you? And if you are using questions as gotchas that are intended to trip them up and prove how smart you are, all you're going to do is embarrass them, make them mad, and set things back you want to know whether the questions you are asking are really intended to take things to a deeper place, you might ask yourself this question, this principle, which I thought is so good. Here it is. Never ask questions you already know the answers to. Never ask questions you already know the answers to. That's the way that you're going to guarantee that you are genuinely interested in drawing these people into your life. In a moment, our kids are going to walk up here they had this wonderful experience in Mexico but you know adults also are their lives are changed. There was one man who came on the trip he's new to me I'd never met him uh and and so I saw him and I said I'm setting up my tent would you like to just come and, and 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 talk as as I'm finishing setting up. So he did and we were sitting inside the tent and we're talking and my opening question was something like would you tell me about yourself? I don't know who you are. And it was the beginning of a new friendship. It's blossoming. I don't know where it will go. But I guarantee you that when we ask questions like that, they are going to be questions that honor Christ, that build his kingdom, that make disciples, and that make deeper friendships. Who doesn't want to do that?